The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Mike Stallard with a message from Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, 70 weeks for Israel. Earlier I shared with you Daniel chapter 2 and the destiny of the Gentiles. It's different now. We're emphasizing the destiny of Israel. Uh, and it's a very powerful uh, passage. And I would suggest that this section is not the most important prophecy even in Daniel. I personally think that Daniel 7 is the kind of the hinged chapter, the centerpiece of the whole book, uh, and as it relates to everything else. Uh, but I do think Daniel 9, our section right here, is the most important prophecy in the entire Bible when it comes to chronology or the timeline uh, of the Bible. It's also very interesting what uh, chapter 7 is kind of, like I said, the hinge chapter. You remember that inverted order, 2 goes with 7, 3 goes with 6, and 4 and 5 go together, and the middle of an inverted order in Jewish thought is the most prominent idea, the humility. Well, chapter 7 is in another inverted order for the rest of the book. Chapter 7 the, emphasizes the fourth world empire, Rome, at the end there, and you go to uh, the end of 11, chapter 11, we'll see that, uh, emphasizes the fourth world empire. Uh, then in chapter 8, you have the third world empire emphasized. And then in, uh, right, uh, in 10 and 11, you have the third world empire emphasized. But then in between those, chapter 9. And I think the intent of that in Hebrew thought is that's the centerpiece for that section. And that is the future of Israel. So we're going to spend some time uh, walking through this passage. And I hope you can uh, stay with me a little bit as we walk through this. Uh, the context is simple. We have the reading of Jeremiah. We saw that. Uh, David Levy helped us with that. Uh, reading and then the prayer of Daniel. It's a powerful prayer. Uh, and then you have God's answer, the 70 weeks prophecy. We need to understand the 70 weeks prophecy is an answer to the prayers that Daniel is giving. So it's not done in a vacuum. Now, by way of introduction, I think I have three large blank spaces there. Don't try to write down everything I'm going to put up here right now because it'll just frustrate you, okay? <laughs> Let me give you some short things here. First, Daniel is still praying. Just write down, still praying, okay? Daniel is still praying about Israel and Jerusalem when the prophecy comes from God. He's in the middle of the prayer. He's interrupted by the angel with an answer. And then Daniel's helped by a man, Gabriel, who's really an angel. Just write down the angel Gabriel there. Uh, who was sent by God, a messenger by God, and Gabriel's a famous angel to us. There are not many angels named in the Bible, although the Catholic Church can tell you a whole bunch of the others. Uh, and Daniel is called upon to understand the vision in verses 22 and 23. Now, it's interesting. At the end of chapter 8, Daniel is upset and he's complaining almost that no one understands this vision. And here the angel is sent and Daniel is called upon. In fact, he, it's, it's required, it's an act of obedience that he understand. And so there's a lot of focus in this chapter on understanding. And yet so many Christians look at this and say, you can't figure this out, forget it. That's the exact opposite of what the angel Gabriel said. So we need to pay attention to what's going on. So let's look at the 70 weeks prophecy. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined 
for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That first verse of the, of the actual 70 weeks prophecy begins with this 70 weeks. We, we use that out of tradition. In the Hebrew, it literally says 70 sevens. Now we can understand why the translators of old would use the word week. Uh, because the word as seven is related to Sabbath. And of course we have the, the week of how many days? Seven. A work week less. For some. Okay. For some of us in ministry, it's almost 24-7, seven days a week. Some of you get pastors know what I mean there. Right? 70 weeks, 70 sevens. So that means it's 490. Now I'm a math major. I think I have that right. So the question becomes, 490 of what? What's it talking about? 490 days? Years? Or something else? Well, I've got an answer for you. The answer is years. We have 490 years. Now, 490 days makes no contextual sense or historical sense. 490, I mean, that's a year and a third. That makes no sense. There's nothing going on in the text that would relate to that, and there's nothing in history that relates to that. It simply makes absolutely no sense. Context implies years. In verse 2, remember Daniel's reading uh, from Jeremiah, and he's reading that he would accomplish 70 years. The focus is on years. Uh, and so I think that implies it, but also... Israel's captivity is related to Sabbath years. I want you to pay attention here to this. Uh, the reason that Israel was taken captive in the Babylonian captivity uh, was idolatry. But the reason for the length of 70 years was that they had failed to let the land rest every seven years like they were supposed to. And according to the text, 70 years of resting to make up for it you do the math, going backwards then for how long had they not let the land rest? 490 years. So there is a symmetry to the prophecy. Notice this, you have the 70 years of captivity, but 490 years of breaking Sabbath rest, going backwards. That takes, us, that takes them almost to the time of David. The land rests for 70 years, and then there's 490 years for prophetic fulfillment, there is a gap there. We're going to have to deal with that. Symmetry in the prophecy, and of course there could be gaps going back uh, but the other way, but God was keeping track. 70, 70 times you didn't keep the land rest required for the seventh year, and so that's why 70 was chosen. And go look that up in Second Chronicles 6, 36. We don't have time to actually turn to that passage. Well, what calendar did they use for their year? A lot of debate among the scholars. I don't know why. I think if they would just agree with me, we'd be all right. <laughs> the Jews used a modified lunar year of 360 days, right? We know that. Uh, every uh, few years, they add a month to make the seasons line up. We have a solar calendar of 365 days, and uh, every four years, we add one day to make everything line up, okay? But they used a modified lunar calendar 360 days. In fact, we know 
uh, we really know uh, from Scripture that we have the timing of that, the number of days in a year, right. We have in Daniel 7 and Daniel 12, Revelation 11, 12, and 13, 42 months, a time, times, a half a time. Remember that? Time a year, times two years, and a half a year. And we have 1,260 days. All of those are laid out for us in the numbers. And they apply to three and a half years. And we only get there by knowing that a year is 360 days each. So we're following a Jewish modified lunar calendar. Okay? That's important uh, uh, as we go through. Now, notice the next thing that he says in verse 24. The 77s are determined for your people. Now, who's Daniel? He's a Jewish fellow. Okay, his people are the Jews, not believers in general of all time, Jews. And for your holy city. That's definitely not Washington, D.C. That's Jerusalem. There's no question about this. We shouldn't argue about this, yet some scholars argue about these little details. So the people of the city are the Jews and Jerusalem. That means this is a Jewish prophecy. It's unlike Daniel 2, like I said, which had the destiny of the Gentiles in mind. Okay? Now, what's the purpose of the 70 weeks? Now, I list six things here. Now, don't try to write them down in those spaces I gave you. I just put what was in the Bible here. So you go back and read the Bible later. And fill it in. They're the same things. Six things. Why did God give the 70 weeks? Six things. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up the vision and prophecy. And to anoint the most holy. Now let's look at these briefly. I used to teach that the first three happened at the first advent with the cross of Christ. And that the second three happened at the second advent with the second coming. I no longer teach that. I believe all six are designed to be fulfilled at the second coming. Now remember, this purpose is designed for Israel to finish the transgression, the rebellion, I think means to finish their rebellion. To make an end of sins means to make an end of their sins as a nation. To make reconciliation for iniquity, of course, Jesus made reconciliation for all of us on the cross. He made a provision, a way out for us, but I think here he's talking about the application of that, the, the making of peace in history for the iniquity of the Jews. And that's going to happen when Jesus returns. And they look upon him whom they pierced and they mourn and many of them turn to him. And then the last three, it's clear, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened yet? That hasn't happened yet. Uh, to seal up the vision and prophecy. That's taken a couple different ways. Uh, we don't have time to really develop it. I think it means to bring to a close, to wrap up the vision and the prophecy. And then to anoint the most holy. That's taken a couple ways. It could be the most holy person and refer to the Messiah. But most likely in this context, it's talking about to anoint the most holy place, which is the temple. And we know there's a millennial temple that will be uh, part of the millennium. And it'll have to be sanctified and uh, anointed and set up and dedicated to start the millennium. Uh, about, probably about the same time that we coronate our new king, Jesus. So these are the purposes of the 70 weeks, I think fulfilled at the second advent, uh, and they're very Jewish-centered. 
Now, I've got a lot of notes down there but, and some charts that will help you. But I've got a, up here, I'm going to put the chart together piece by piece. And so maybe the best way is to study the notes later and just look up here and follow the diagram as we go through it. I don't know, everybody's different in the way they study and how they look at things, but hopefully this will help you. So I have a timeline here. Okay, let's look in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command or decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is seven sevens and then 62 sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So there's a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Now I've put uh, dates up here, 445, 444. Now, sometimes you see in books that you read, they'll list two dates like that, okay? As if they can't make up their mind, okay? But here's what's going on when you see those two dates. Uh, the, when the northern kingdom split off, you remember? Uh, you know, the Yankees and the southerners split and they had the divided kingdom, okay? The north built their rival temple in Samaria, okay? They used a different calendar. So the years aren't the same. So that's why you see in some of the books two dates, okay? From the northern kingdom, it'd be one day. From the southern kingdom, it'd be another date, okay? So 445, 444. Now, another, the other prominent date that's often used here, and they, there's four or five different dates that are discussed, but it's 457, a decree made uh, when Ezra... Uh, involved Ezra. This one involves Nehemiah. And when you go back and you see uh, the decree of the king, the empire, uh, the emperor, uh, to allow Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, this is the decree, I think, that's mentioned here. It's the one where they finally rebuild the walls, and uh, it pushes beyond anything that had happened before. So the 77s start there. The 490 years start there, but, but they break it up into pieces. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. That has a ring to it, until Messiah the Prince. That's Jesus. We understand that in our New Testament fulfillment. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So it breaks it up into two parts, seven sevens and then 62 sevens. Now, why does it do that? Sometimes it may just be a Jewish uh, way. Sometimes they speak with flourishes in language, and maybe that's just a way of saying it. Or it could be that it took 49 years when Nehemiah went back. It took him 49 years you know, to put the walls up rather quickly, but maybe it took them a long time to clean the city and get it put back together. We know that rebuilding places, I mean, New Orleans is not entirely rebuilt from Katrina yet. Okay, we understand it takes time. So maybe that's what it is we don't really know. But then the 62 sevens are added on to that. So you have 49 years plus 434 years until Messiah, the prince. And I put triumphal entry here. Uh, I like the uh, teachings of uh, J. Alva McLean, John Wickham, John Walford, Harold Horner, and Sir Robert Anderson. Great men of God who have labored in the details of the chronology. And there are here 483 Jewish years, 69 weeks or 69 sevens. For those of you who are taking score, 
keeping score 173,880 days. And you can track that. And when you track that from the decree, and we don't have time to put up the math structure for you, but when you track that, some of you have already done this, you've told me, you come to the day of the triumphal entry. The Sunday before, Palm Sunday. You come to Palm Sunday. And so my Messiah comes in, walks into Jerusalem, and he's going to be crucified later. He's already told him a parable in Luke 19 that the kingdom's not going to start right away. But they think it is. And so they lay the palm leaves down and hail him as the, uh, the, the, blessed, the blessed one. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? That the days would work out precisely. I'm going to come back and talk about that in my uh, conclusions as we look at that. But notice, it continues. Um, uh, let's come down to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, that is after that second red section up there on my chart, after that 434-year uh, period, Messiah shall be cut off. That means killed. And of course we know, if we're right about this timing and the triumphal entry, after that, Jesus is killed. He's killed. This is one of two major passages in the Old Testament that teach the death of the Messiah. See, most of the Jews in the first century only had Jesus, uh, the Messiah coming as a reigning king. They didn't have the death part. They were ignoring Isaiah 53 and this passage that clearly teaches Messiah will die. It goes on to say, but not for himself, in my New King James translation here, but not for himself. Some say that means uh, kind of a hint of a substitutionary death. I don't know that that's the idea. I think it means he'll be cut off, and uh, the Hebrew, there is nothing for him. I don't, it's saying this is not the time of his kingdom. And obviously, he was killed. He died. So he wasn't coming to rule and reign then. Nothing for himself. That awaits the second coming. But then something else happens. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's Jerusalem and the temple. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And so the people of the prince who is to come, well, we've already had the fourth world empire mentioned. And the fourth world empire is, which, which is the fourth world empire? Rome. So the people of the prince would be the Romans. Now the prince to come, I think, is going to be the Antichrist. We'll talk about him later. But the people of that empire... The people of that empire are the Romans. And so the Romans destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happens after the 62 sevens. It happens after this 483 years, the first part. And notice, then, verse 27, then he... He is probably the Roman prince to come. Shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's one seven. And that is the full 490 years. 
But I want you to notice something here. Those who don't hold our position about this passage think that we are bringing our theology and just forcing it into the Bible instead of letting the Bible speak for itself. And they would say the idea that there's a gap between the first 69 sevens and the last seven, like I have here, that we're just forcing that on the text. But let's go back and look at that again. It says, after the 62 weeks, two things will happen. Messiah dies, Jerusalem destroyed. Then you have the seven years. You have a gap. It's actually taught in the text. It's not something weird that we have kind of brought in here to make it fit our theology of the future. That's not at all what's going on here. Obviously, there are other ch chapters that we haven't forced into our future. For example, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, they've taken a lot in liberty in Daniel 8 and forced it into the future, at least some of it. Uh, we don't do that kind of thing. We go where the Bible goes. And so we need to understand that. There is a gap. It's an exegetical gap. It is taught in the text. It is not forced on the text. Keep that in mind. And of course, Jesus comes at the end of that seven years, and we label that the tribulation based upon other passages. It's a horrible seven years. Go back and study that diagram and think through the passage step by step, line by line, concept by concept. Now I have a second diagram here to deal with the 70th week, that verse 27. Then he, the Roman prince, who I take as the Antichrist figure, shall confirm a covenant or treaty with many for one week. Now, who's the many? Okay, you have the peace treaty and the covenant. It begins the seven years. The Roman prince makes that with many, I take as Israel. Why? Well, remember, the whole passage is about the Jews and Jerusalem. And, and that verse talks about the sacrifices. So it's talking about the Jews. So he's making this covenant with the Jews. But in the middle of that week, the covenant's broken. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. An abomination of des desolation, just like Antiochus Epiphanes had set up in the Third World Empire, the little horn from the Third World Empire, desecrated the temple, uh, sacrificed a sow on the altar, put a statue of Zeus there, rubbed pig fat on the walls of the temple. This guy's going to do the same thing. Halfway through, he makes a treaty with him, but he breaks it halfway through and turns on Israel in a big way. Not that he really was in their camp before. He's just deceptive. And so you have that covenant broken halfway through. The temple sacrifices stop. But notice the end of that. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And the word desolate there in the Hebrew is really a verb. One making desolate. The desolator, one translation says, one marginal note says. And that's, of course, this Roman prince, the one who was making desolate. He gets destroyed. The consummation is poured out on 
him. That's the outline of the chapter. That's a walkthrough. If we had time, if Steve would let me, I mean, got these lights up here. Green means go for it. Yellow means you're in danger of purgatory. Uh, and the red one means you're going into the fiery furnace. Okay. All right, so uh, we could go through it again if we had time, but I just encourage you folks to take your time, walk through it step by step. It's not a passage, you know, a lot of the Bible you can read casually and come to the right conclusion. Some of the Bible you have to study. This is one of those you have to study. So let me encourage you to do that. Go step by step, line by line, get just some good commentaries, take the PowerPoint, uh, think about the notes and, and study it hard and don't give up easily. Okay. And don't go again, like I said last night, don't go running for some newspaper story. You know, don't go find what's current events and kind of bring it to the passage. Let the passage take you where God wants to lead you. Okay. Now, when we look at a passage like this, okay, now I know what it says, and I can brag to my friends that I know prophecy. I can go teach a class on it. And the people in the church will be so proud of me. And I'll be proud of myself. Is that really why he gave it? Remember, he's, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Daniel, the Jews. And he's trying to encourage them. You see, we've, all, we've talked about already that our best days are yet to come. Well, you know, Daniel's best days are yet to come. The nation of Israel's best days are yet to come. And all of this is given, and the angel wanted him to understand it. Now, Daniel would not know all the details of fulfillment like we do, at least the fulfilled part. I mean, he doesn't have that. In the progress of Revelation, he doesn't know that the Messiah's name was Jesus Christ of Nazareth who would die on a Roman cross. He doesn't know that. He knows Messiah is going to be cut off. He would know that. And he'd know timing, but he wouldn't know a lot of the specifics like you and I know looking back but it was meant to encourage him the same way it should be for us. So let's walk through this. First of all, what we know about God from this passage. God loves to give us prophetic details, not just general thoughts. Have you ever read Nostradamus? You ever watched a History Channel thing about Nostradamus? They make him look like the best thing ever. You know, his prophecies are so vague you can map them to anything you want. Some people do that with the Bible. But the Bible's not vague. The Bible is precise. That doesn't mean we understand everything. But the Bible is precise. God gives details. He says, check it out. God's not afraid to put it out there in details. See if I'm right. And God's always right. God loves to give us prophetic details, not just general thoughts. Number two, God can pre-write history. See, all but the 70th week has already passed. It's already been fulfilled. That helps us to have confidence. If everything with the first advent and past actions were fulfilled literally, then guess what with the second coming? and the future tribulation stuff, and the kingdom stuff. He's going to fulfill it in detail 
God can pre-write that too. And that's really the nub of the question when you talk to scholars from liberal land. The reason they reject our position is they don't believe in supernatural God. They reject supernaturalism. Their God is basically human. And I like what one preacher said, I don't want to have a God that I can beat up. They have, they've humanized God. We have a God who's powerful and supernatural. And he can pre-write history, the God who is not bound by time. He's outside, he's outside of time. He's past, present, future, all at the same time. You and I can't relate to that because we live in time step by step. God can pre-write history. Number three, fulfillment of prophecy helps to demonstrate the inspiration of God's Bible. It's hard to come away from a passage like this and believe that this is just haphazardly thrown together. That it's just uh, men's ideas thrown up against the wall. God has breathed this book and given it to us. And it's inerrant. It has no errors in it. Whenever somebody says to me, it's got errors, I say, for instance. I just learned to say that. For instance. You know, and they'll usually stammer around. Now, every now and then you run across a thoughtful person who's seeking and working, and you, you kind of try to deal with them. But most of the time, they don't know. They're just saying what they've heard somebody else say. So I just say, for instance, now the Bible is from God, and God doesn't lie. He tells the truth. He records the lies of men faithfully. When Satan lies, he records it accurately. Sometimes he'll summarize. Sometimes he's precise, like in these prophecies. Uh, but the word is from God. And we've said this over and over, right? Doesn't the book of Daniel scream the idea that God is in control of history? That's why we don't have to worry about hurricanes. Yes, we do in a local sense. Yeah. But not in the big sense. The, where's history going? You don't have to worry about communism and, and uh, uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, Western Europe and America and prophecy. And we don't have to lose sleep over any of that. And if you've lost sleep over what's going on in the world, you need to come back to the idea that God's in control of history. And just trust in Him and get a good night's sleep. And buy one of those fancy pillows and you'll be fine. All right, now, so what? What about you? That's about God from relating to him. What about you? You can trust the Bible in all things. And I've almost said that already. Okay, you in your life can come to this book and trust it. Okay, in the prophecies, okay, sure, trust what God's doing in history, but maybe trust what he's doing in your family. Trust what he's doing in your work. Trust him to live your daily life. Embrace God fully, like Habakkuk came to in his book, by faith. Started out embracing him as a wrestler and changed, embraced him by faith. And we shouldn't wrestle with God. We should embrace him by faith in our daily walk. I'm talking about Christians who already have put their faith in Christ to be saved. We must continue to trust his word and his ways. 
so you can have confidence in God's plan for your life. Part of the plan for every one of us is that we share our faith. And that's hard to do, and it's getting harder to do in America. It used to be when I grew up in Huntsville, when I got saved and, and when I was 20 years old at the University of Alabama, in Huntsville, Alabama, I, I could uh, knock on a door. I had a bus route in the old bus, uh, bus route days, and, and I could knock on a door of a stranger, and they'd invite me in for cake. Those days are gone. Witnessing is harder. It's harder to share our faith, but we still must do it. It is not optional. It is a command. We are supposed to do that. And it's not just for preachers or FOI workers. It's for all believers. We need to do that. I told you about the dream I had of the giant lady eating people who stepped on a boat. Well, shortly after I came to Christ when I was 20 years old, I had another dream. It was a real dream. And, I, of course, I didn't know theology at the time. I was still very, very young in the Lord and hadn't, hadn't, hadn't been messed up yet. <laughs> I was at the last gathering of people, the people who made it to heaven. Vast field of people as far as I could see. And I was going from person to person to person asking if one of my relatives was there. And they were, they were not saved. They didn't know the Lord. And I woke up with this sense of dread. And I sometimes wonder if, as time has gone on, I've lost my sense of dread over the destiny of lost souls. History is going somewhere, and it's going to end, and there is a coming judgment, and you and I need to take as many people with us as we can. So let's pray. Let's agonize for the lost, and let's be bold in our witness and share our faith as the Lord gives us opportunity. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past prophecy conferences, visit us at foi.org.